Imagine the scene. A perfect world. Nothing wrong. And I mean nothing. Nothing wrong. Everything perfect and good. Adam and Eve were created by God in this world. It was a world that was good. A world which they needed to exercise their dominion over, to be sure. But it was a world that was good. It was a world that overflowed with shalom. You know, shalom, uh, you may have heard that word before. It's often connected with the idea of peace, but it's actually far more than mere peace. Alvin Plantinga puts it this way. He says, shalom is universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. It's a world where everything works properly. Nothing malfunctions, nothing is out of place. This is the world that you and I were made for. It's a world where nothing breaks down and everything operates the way it's meant to. It's a world where people are always thankful, where relationships are respectful and whole, where thoughts and desires are good, where emotions can be trusted. It's a world where there's strong marriages, there's innocent children. It's a world where others encourage each other in being good. It's a world where you would have a workplace and everyone in the workplace would cheer your advancement and they would be cheering on your success. One of the uh, most beautiful uh, verses that captures this world, it's a strange one perhaps for some of you, is Genesis 2.25 which says, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. It's a statement of things being right. I mean, think about that for a moment. It's weird for us because the thought of actually being naked and being seen is difficult for us. It's an uncomfortable thought. But back then, it wasn't bad. Nothing was bad. Nothing was hidden and nothing was bad. You and I were made for this. But while we were made for this, we missed out. We missed out. You missed out. I missed out. Adam and Eve got a piece of this, didn't they? They they got born into a world that was perfect. We, on the other hand, are being born into a world, in a lot of ways, which is at war. A world where things are upside down. We get to Genesis chapter 3 and we find a curious situation unfolding. We have Adam and Eve talking to the one whom... They should never talk to. They should never have a conversation with. And that's the serpent himself. They ought to say to the serpent, get lost. It's the only thing that should have been said. But they don't. They dialogue with him. His, his work has always, to been, has, has always been to drive a wedge between humanity and God. And you know what he does in this moment in Genesis 3, the fall of humanity, is the serpent lures Adam and Eve toward an action that will have consequences for them that they can't control. This is a classic movie plot, isn't it? Where humanity invents something and then it gets out of their control. You know, humanity has this way in in movies of, of creating these plots where we come up with something that's amazing, that's great, and then all of a sudden it masters us. Think I, Robot. Think any of the Jurassic movies. Imagine that moment for Adam and Eve, naked and not ashamed. 
and then shortly after, defiled, dirty, guilty, under a curse. Everything began to malfunction. <laughs> Alvin Plantinga puts it this way. He says, Shalom has been vandalized. It's not the way it's supposed to be anymore. And, and we know this. We know this because we get to this unnatural place of vandalized shalom. And we know we have to get back. We have to get back to shalom. So Adam and Eve get to work, don't they? And in a lot of ways, their response seems so right to us. They hide, they make excuses, they scapegoat and self-justify all the while trying to scale this vertical cliff that goes on forever to get back to the place that they just lost. But the evil just keeps coming. Like a tsunami that doesn't stop after the initial wave. Think the tsunami in Japan that, that comes in and when you're at the beach and a, and a wave comes, you think, okay, I'm going to get a break after the wave. When a tsunami comes, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. There was no break. And like those, those pictures of a tsunami going through Japan that just pick up cars and buses and push them around, we see evil floods in and it pushes things around and one of the massive realities that happened for Adam and Eve is uh, they have war break out in their own family one of their sons goes to war against one of their other sons and he murders him and the tsunami of evil continues we have depression we have murders now we've got fraud we've got abuse We've got relational breakdown. We've got anxiety, sickness, envy, backbiting. It's not the way it's supposed to be. They couldn't get back to a safe place. They couldn't get back to shalom and neither can we. And this is the place that we find ourselves in. Stuck with a sense that we were made for something different to this. And every now and then, just the slightest taste of that thing that we have been made for, we, are, we find ourselves in a place where we don't get it very often. We don't get shalom. It just doesn't happen very often. And even when it comes, we don't get to enjoy it for very long. And it's jarring. This longing of ours of wanting to be in a place of shalom is jarring. Have you ever felt like death is wrong at a funeral? You go to a funeral and you look at the casket. They were too young, way too young. They were a good person. There's something about death that's just jarring. Have you ever heard that cry in yourself that it's just not right? It's not supposed to be like this. It's not fair. And then you hear that phrase in the back of your head that many people say, life's not fair. Life's not fair. But it's supposed to be, isn't it? And you know it. You know it deep down in your soul. It's supposed to be fair. Children are not meant to die. Bad things are not meant to happen. We have this innate desire in us, this longing in us that we, we want to see things play out good. That things should be well. You know, and we, we want it and we work to get it. 
But even when we get it, it seems to slip through our fingers. It's, it's like that frustrating moment where your cheeky friend offers you a bite of something that they're holding, and just as you go to take a bite, they pull it away. And you just get a little bit of it, maybe a little taste just on your lips, and then it's gone. We know it when we have it. Shalom, that is. But most of the time, it seems to be beyond our grasp. And even when we do get it, we never seem to have it as long as we want it. And we're left with a longing for it. And you can hear this longing. I mentioned before funerals. You go to funerals and you'll hear people say things like this. He has gone to a better place. And we'll see her again one day. And even to some extent, rest in peace. There's this longing inside of us for shalom. But what Adam and Eve missed is the same thing that we miss. Because you can't buy shalom. And you can't really strive for it. Shalom, this universal flourishing, this wholeness, this delight, isn't a kind of commodity that you've just got to get your hands on. Shalom is a byproduct. You have to do something else to get it. <laughs> what do you need to do? You need to be connected to God. You see, shalom is about God and his presence. God is the one who makes all created things go. So it makes sense that if he is the one that makes created things go, that you're not going to get shalom without him. <laughs> Run from him like Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3 and you get chaos and disorder. Run to him and be in intimate communion with him, and you'll find shalom. If you love Jesus and you walk with Jesus for a while, you know that's true. You know that when you run to him and you live in his presence, everything starts to find its proper place. That's how it's meant to be. And some of you go, well, how, how do we get that? <laughs> How do we get that? How do we get in that relationship with God? How do we get in that space in God's presence? Well, there are things that we can do, but by and large, being in that place is something that needs to be given to you. And I want to say to you this morning that uh, you can get bits and pieces of shalom as you walk with Jesus, but let me give you the good news. Um, there's an age coming where shalom will be never-ending. All the obstacles that get in between you and God are going to be removed. It's going to go on forever. Last week we looked at the time where Jesus will return and this week we look at where we're going. What does eternal life look like? Well, let me start with this question. When does eternal life start? Well, John is very clear in the Gospel of John that eternal life starts when you Trust in Jesus and believe in Jesus. This is John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, eternal life has started for you. It starts because you're knowing God. You know him. He knows you. There's a little bump at death. <laughs> or when Jesus returns, if that's before we all die, um, but this is where we're headed. We're headed to an end state of knowing and being known 
by God. So let's have a read now of uh, Revelation 21 verse 1 to 8 and see the picture of eternal life or part of the picture of eternal life that John sees uh, in Revelation 21. If you want to turn in your Bibles to that Revelation 21, we're going to read verse 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God." He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I think there's three things that we see from this passage that I'm going to cover today and that's these. Uh, Eternal life will be good. Um, the connection between goodness and the presence of God and the fact that only good people get in. Let's kick into the first one. This is in verse 1 and verse 2. I'll just look at verse 1 quickly. Eternal life will be good. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. You like this already, right? Uh, Everyone likes new. We just do. That's why there's far more retail shops that sell new things than secondhand things because we like new now I mean think about when you buy something new what do you do you open it up you've got all the nice packaging the uh, the organizations that have kind of worked out this experience of uh, getting something that's new like Apple and those kind of people it's like you've got a there's, there's multiple veils that you've got to go through in opening up all of these packages and getting them out um, we like it right you probably have either heard or made the comment yourself that people should make car air refreshers that smell like a new car because there's something good about getting in a new car, right? But this isn't just new as in a new model. This is what John's talking about here and what John sees is a new and improved model. <laughs> it's got some continuity with the old one as resurrection bodies do, but it's there's a whole bunch of the old one that's been done away with. One of the things that's been done away with is, is uh, the, uh, the previous heaven and earth uh, finiteness. Uh, another thing that uh, John sees here is the removal of the sea. Uh, now, if you played a word association game with the word sea in the uh, book of Revelation, pretty much it's all bad. Um, it's basically a world of trouble. It represents evil, tribulation for God's people. That's going to be gone. Bottom line is everything's going to be new, it's going to be better uh, and God is going to make it new and better and the reason why it's going to be better is because troubles are going to be done away with. Go to verse 2. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, this is, this is uh, God's people, the church. They're going to look pretty good. <laughs> go down to verse 9. We're not actually going to spend a lot of time in this section, but go down to verse 9 to 11 of Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. That's you and I who love Jesus. Coming down out of heaven from God. Listen to this bit. Having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Um, we, um, we're talking uh, at at the project, uh, project work in the project office the other day um, about how wives tend to be the fashion police for their husbands. Um, in particular, we're talking about uh, getting ready for church on a Sunday morning. The husband's kind of gone in. He's, he's getting himself ready. He, uh, he puts on his high-vis shirt and he walks out the bedroom door and his wife says, uh-uh, no, not like that. It's kind of like put your hands on the car, you need to go straight back in there and get changed. And the husband goes back with his tail between his legs to put on some different clothing. And it's got hallmarks of the, uh, the parable that Jesus tells about the man that went to the wedding banquet and he wasn't clothed appropriately. Uh, he gets booted out of there. And I want to say to you this morning that uh, there will not be any fashion fails after Jesus comes back. None. No fashion fails. You're going to look awesome. You are going to look awesome. You're going to look great. This is what it was in the very beginning. You were made to image the glorious one. You reflect him. And it's, it's going to be finished. That job's going to be finished. And there's a link here back to, um, in this text, back to Isaiah 61. Listen to this. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now, if you have moments where you feel a complete and utter failure and useless, this is good news. This is good news for you. The, uh, the job that God is doing in you will be done, it will be finished, and you're going to look great. You will image the glorious one again. Imagine that. Eternal life will be good. There's a link between goodness and the presence of God. This is the second bit that we're going to today. So go to verse 3 and 4 with me. Let's read that again. These are rich words. We do well to loiter in these. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You go back up to verse 3 there. You know the Greek word behind dwelling place of God uh, is with men is, uh, is tabernacle. The Old Testament tent. And here's the idea. Since the very first sin, God has moved toward his people. 
the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood were all expressions of this. There's a great irony even uh, for those of you who remember that story of the Israelites and the uh, golden calf. It was that whole uh, idolatry that ends up there happens right in the middle of God's instructions about the tabernacle. And what was the tabernacle about? It was about God dwelling with his people. You know, there are times in Scripture where it's clear that God needs to control His presence because He's holy and He ought not be dishonoured and also because people get wrecked when they don't handle things well when they're in His presence. And and in some ways you get the feeling in the Old Testament that God's kind of distancing Himself from people. Uh, At the same time that He's wanting to be near and to dwell with them, He's distancing Himself from his people. But here, well, it's not that at all, is it? (laughs) It's not that at all. God has made his home with his people. There's there's no temple or tabernacle in heaven. Uh, Revelation 21 verse 22 says that, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty and the Lamb. God truly will be a God with His home is now amongst us. I mean, go back to verse 3 there. Um, It's like, if you don't get the point the first time, uh, how many times does John say in verse 3 that God's going to dwell with his people? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they'll be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We've got three in one verse. Do you get it? (laughs) He's into it. I remember uh, in my teaching career having conversations with students about heaven. And um, one of the things that I would say to students about heaven is I uh, would say to them, if you don't love Jesus, you're not going to enjoy it. You don't want to go there. It is not going to be fun because heaven is all about Jesus. Now think for a moment about... um, the effect of God's presence here in these verses. Think about the effect of it and what he's done here. Uh, We uh, we have this thing in Australia, uh, this phrase, uh, it's probably more broad than Australia, but we've got this phrase or this this word that we use called freeloader. And we actually use it at the project. We have something called freeloader week. Uh, A freeloader is actually a negative term uh, to describe someone who takes from the generosity of other people and doesn't give anything in return. That's what a freeloader is. Well... This is classic God. He makes his dwelling with us and he's the generous one. The people are the beneficiaries of his presence. And these these are marvellous effects. What are some of these effects that we actually see of God's presence? What are some of the things that God does? Well, here's, here's the first one. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. I want you to think about how personal that is I mean God could delegate this right couldn't he he's delegated someone else can do that job Pete's been complaining about that thing for the last 50 years Uh, Barry the angel can you just get over there and just get him sorted I mean he could create something couldn't he he could create RTD2 versions of robots that could go and kind of get that job done but no he doesn't he does it personally 
just think about that for a moment, that Jesus himself is going to settle and console you personally. Think about, think about the scars that you carry, the troubles that you carry, the grief, the loss. Think about all those times that you, that you cry, that you weep. Yeah, in some ways, I think um, one of the things that we do in the church is we sit with people who are struggling, who are grieving, who have experienced sorrow and loss and have pain in their life. We sit with them and sitting, them, sitting with people in the really hard things of their life, the painful things of their life, can, can often be the hardest bit about helping someone. And, and part of what makes it harder, I think, is when will it end? When will this person's grief end? Not because you're tired of them grieving. It's like you just don't know where it's going to end. And there's a powerlessness to, to make it better. And there's a sense that even as we sit with one another in the midst of our sorrows and our troubles, we, we can only really say either just with our physical presence or uh, out of our mouths, look, I'm, I'm sorry and I love you and I'll, I'll be with you, but... I can't actually take this away from you. Well, totally different with Jesus. (laughs) He will be a comforter and consoler of you and there will be no more painful crying or mourning. It'll be done. It'll be done. There will be no residual going into heaven of the griefs and the struggles and the troubles that you've had. What about this one? This pops up in this passage too. No more death. How would that change things for you? Other than totally. Use your imagination for a moment. I mean, Hebrews tells us Jesus has dealt with our fear of death. So that one should be mostly done away with. That's a massive change. But what about living in a place where there is no death? What knock-on effect would that have? Well, the other kind of key part that kind of pops up there in that, um, that verse, that verse 4 there, no more pain. Think about that. No more pain of any type. You up for that? <laughs> this is the last Eden, and you can expect a reversal of the curse that happened in the very beginning. Revelation 22 verse 3 says nothing is going to be accursed. Pain of childbearing, pain because of the curse of the ground and death from Genesis 3 is gone. No more pain. No more pain. Shades of Isaiah 35 here, isn't it? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Uh, The only thing that's going to be in eternal life is uh, a joy and gladness. Who's who's up? (laughs) Yeah, like let's, yeah, I'll have, can I have a double portion? And that portion will never run out. You see, anything that doesn't fit joy and gladness is done away with part of the old order it's got to go sorrow and sighing on your bike get out of here you don't belong there 
whatever possibly can get in between you and Jesus, it's going to be out of there. It's going to be a good day. Here's where I want to finish today on uh, the, the final point. The final point today, we've had um, eternal life is going to be good. A goodness and the presence of God are connected. Here's the last one. Only good people get in. Go down to verse 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, sorry, this is verse 5. We'll go 5 to 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life, hallmarks of Isaiah 55, without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I'll be his God, and he'll be my son. Here's a kicker at the end. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all lies, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So I want you to just imagine something for a minute. Let's just imagine that you get into eternal life, you get into heaven, and some bad people sneak in too. And it lasts forever. Do you still want to go there? Oh, you'd probably still say yes, but you'd probably be thinking, yeah, but I was kind of hoping for something better. I was hoping for something better than that. And it reminded me of a bunch of social situations uh, we often uh, can get in where we get paired up or grouped with people uh, outside of our control. I remember as a, um, as a kid caring a lot about whose dorm I was going to be in at a camp. Or uh, perhaps you've had that experience where you go to a wedding and you, you go straight up to the guest list almost within the first two minutes to find out which table you're going to be sitting at. Um, maybe you're at a church camp with people and you got bundled up with some people who snore really bad. I always struggle with being in rooms with snorers. Um, and the thought of actually being stuck with people for a period of time that were hard to get on with for one reason or another can be a little perishing at times. Uh, but at least you could look to the end of it and go, I only have to make it through to the end of the night or I only have to make it through to the end of the camp, what would it be like if some bad people got in and you were rooming with them for the rest of eternity? No, that wouldn't be as good, would it? That wouldn't be as good. So who's out? Well, John tells you who's out. Um... Let me just go through them uh, quickly. Uh, cowardly and faithless. Those people who are slaves to fear rather than Jesus. The ones who aren't bold. Or the ones who are not like Caleb in the Old Testament. You know, they go and they scout out the promised land and uh, come back and, and 10 of them say, no, we, we can't do this. They're too big. And uh, Caleb and Joshua say, yeah, we've got this. We can just get right into it. Um, those are the kind of people that make it in. The ones who are cowardly and faithless don't. Um, John says murderers don't get in. Uh, and I think from the words of Jesus, we can safely assume that that isn't just 
physical murder that's actually hating someone in your heart because Jesus said that was in the same category as murder. So if you've done that, uh, you're not going to make it in because you're going to wreck it. Um, sexual immorality. So look, sexual sin of, of any, any kind at all, uh, heart or physical, um, anything sexually that God says, no, you should not be doing that. Uh, sorcerers, so that's, that's magic and occult practice. Uh, idolaters, any time that you kind of, anyone who worships something that's not uh, God. Um, and, and then just as if to make the, uh, the final point there, um, it's kind of driving a bit of a nail into the coffin, to be honest, is uh, all liars. And it's like, ah, uh, okay. Um, And I think part of what John's saying here is people who aren't being true to what they profess, uh, some hypocrisy and inconsistency. Uh, Is is anyone feeling like they're in a bit of trouble? I'm going to make the cut. Um, You know know what the difference is between those who get in and those who don't is? It's not actually their performance. It's the performance of another for them. That is the difference. It, it's those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The, one, the Lamb is the one who's been sacrificed and crucified for us. Revelation 21 verse 27, listen to this. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You know... Who's in? (laughs) The ones who get in on the work of another. The ones who get in on the work of the lamb who was slain. Revelation 21 verse 6 says that um, to those who are thirsty, I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You know, God, in the death of Christ on the cross, offers to you righteousness and goodness to purify you and make you clean. To give you his record. And that's the only way that you're going to get in. There's a uh, thing at the Sondergeld house, and it probably exists in every family at some point in time in, in the whole of Australia, I would think. And that's the lure of getting kids to bed when they don't want to go to bed, right? So what, what's that lure? It's like, I'll give you a horse, <laughs> right? I'll give you a horse. Everyone knows what a horse is, right? It's where the kid climbs up on the back, usually their father, and the father takes them into their bed. Well, how, how do you get in to eternity? Only on the back of another. A bloodied, flogged, crucified back. The back of the one who was called the Prince of Peace. So, if you're under the pump now and the pressure's on and you feel like giving in anywhere, maybe it's hard and you want to give up. I want to tell you there's a new Eden coming. A better one. And I'd encourage you to... Um, 
I'd encourage you to have a look at Revelation 22, 1 to 6. To stir up your longings. It's a beautiful picture. And I want to say to you this morning that your longings make sense. They make sense. And don't settle for second best. Your longing for shalom is actually a longing for God himself. You're going to get him an uninterrupted peace forever. I want to read a uh, C.S. Lewis quote for you. Um, Just as I finish, we'll put it on the screen. This is what Lewis says in Mere Christianity. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very centre of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die?